Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, forcefully displaced bodies in Bosnia from the 1992-1995 war to contemporary fortress Europe with Selma Perovic. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Selma Porubic, who is um, uh, the director of uh, SESI, which is a center for refugee and IDP studies in uh, Sarajevo. Uh, she's also a scholar in migration studies as well as an activist. Um, and uh, it opens a new series in Archipelago, a series done in the Western Balkans. Um, so we're, we're starting it in Sarajevo, and I'm very happy to be uh, traveling, as, in particular in this uh, in this important city, uh, to do this uh, to do this series. Uh, Salma, hello. Hello. Uh, uh, so today we will speak about um, two situations that do not appear as necessarily uh, connected in f at first glance, which is uh, the problem of refugees during uh, the, the war in, uh, in Bosnia between uh, 1992 and 1995, um, as well, uh, I mean, in internally displaced uh, people as well as refugees. And the current situation uh, uh, with uh, a particularly important uh, uh, Migratory flux um, uh, through the Balkans of uh, of many refugees uh, fr from Syria, but also from other places, um, and uh, I think we'll see that uh, even though those two um, those two uh, group of people are not directly connected through. I mean, depend on two different uh, historical episodes. Uh, the the logic of displacement remain uh, more or less the same. At least that's kind of the hypothesis I'm making. You you will tell us about about that. Uh, but anyway, would you would you maybe uh, start by telling us a little bit what you are doing at SESI, which uh, depends on the University of Sarajevo, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm honored to be the one to open your series. <laughs> thank you on very such much. an important topic. <laughs> of was displacement um, yes well uh, center uh, where I work um, is uh, actually as you mentioned Center for Refugee and IDP Studies um, has a unique position because it is in a country uh, with the recent history of massive scale displacement which is just 20 years ago but effects are very tangible still today and we still have a massive scale emigration although labor emigration but Occasionally, there are asylum seekers from Bosnia still in Europe. Uh, so the, it's it's unique to have a center of that kind to promote education in refugee studies and refugee law and to do research in such an environment still affected. Um, uh, it's very uh, displacement is still a very political issue here. So talking about displacement from the perspective of uh, international protection regime. Um, Refugee law and human rights um, is very ethnicized and political here in Bosnia and still problematic and uh, we don't get a lot of people really being, say, informed enough that this field of uh, studies, refugee studies or just, you know, forced migration um, area studies exist. It's still very much something that uh, to them is a personal experience. And they react emotionally, their trauma present, and um, so and it's a political issue, as I said, because uh, the, the the displacement is uh, still not resolved. We still have internally displaced persons. We also have refugees in the region from Bosnia, and yeah, this chapter is still open. This poor chapter. Uh, so the center was formed a few years ago, where I actually just um, concluded my PhD in forced migration studies at Lund University in Sweden. Uh, from the perspective of uh, psychosocial studies, psychology, I'm a psychologist, uh, also with a specific profile in psychology of religion. So I was, uh, throughout my studies, 10-year period, I was actually researching, which mainly took place, I must say, in Sweden, um, but also UK and US, 
at times also in Cairo, Egypt, at the Refugee Studies Center there, at American University, I was actually looking into uh, factors that promote health uh, among the refugee populations, uh, but also mainly at the individual level. So I was looking at cultural resources that refugees come with that usually counterbalance the traumas because there was always too much attention within health studies on pathology, pathologizing the war experiences and looking at it from the clinical mm. psychological perspective, treating people, finding different ways to uh, you know promote uh, therapies and to do clinical work. Psychiatrists also involved very much in victims of torture uh, among the refugees, etc. And post-traumatic stress disorder being the dominant discourse. But I but that's minority usually. Majority of people have been through war. And this has been the case for centuries on this planet, actually um, find resources to deal with the war experiences. So I was interested in the majority. What are the resources? And I looked into cultural resources. And some of the cultural resources that I looked into were religion, spirituality, humor, family-centered life, etc. So I mainly focused on Bosnian refugees uh, settled in Scandinavia, but I also looked at Iranian refugees, refugees, um, Chilean refugees, Somali refugees, different refugee groups in Scandinavia, <clears throat> and Tibetan refugees, importantly, in India. Uh, but after that, as I concluded my PhD, and this is back in 2009, I actually um, was here in Bosnia for a short-term consultancy for UNHCR, and I was looking at um, access to quality education for different categories of forced migrants, displaced persons, returnees in Bosnia, refugees from Kosovo here, etc. And those 45 days of consultancy actually turned into these, what is it now, seven years I'm stuck here. And in the meantime, UNHCR formed the center that I'm directing now um, and also abandoned the center after two years, um, realizing that this is really a tough area where you, to introduce refugee studies still very political, as I said, and sensitive issue. Um, but also, yeah, because of the funding and whatnot that they depend on. So um, we had a staff of seven people in the beginning, junior and senior researchers. In the end, it's us volunteers, actually. I'm volunteering. So it sounds very funny when you say director and center. <laughs> but uh, at the present, uh, we are just placed at the Faculty of Political Science, University of Sarajevo, where it all started, 2011. But with no permanent staff, we fund ourselves from the projects and, and uh, I must say, um, uh, foreign donors, uh, research donors, science, science, those that fund scientific research, which are very few in, in the Western Balkans, while the government doesn't invest any money in, in the research, like 0.0 something of the uh, GDP. So we are dependent on the foreign donors. And um, so, uh, yeah, there is one project that employs 18 people in three countries now that I'm running, and this is how we are surviving. And that project is funded by a regional research promotion program by SDC, Swiss government, and Freiburg University in Switzerland. Um, and it's actually, it's titled, um, uh, what is it titled? Uh, just let me remember my own, the title of my own project. I think <laughs> it's titled... Um, help mental health i mean it has to do with um um oh, engendering forced migration uh and mental health in a social transitioning uh the context of social trans transitioning in bosnia kosovo and serbia that's not the proper title i can't remember but that's the that's the topic that we're tackling in the three countries uh in each country five to six people um, uh, actually um, composing a research team, uh, mainly interdisciplinary, uh, social work scientists, um, psychologists, um, policy scientists, those that look into health policies, um, sociologists, uh, etc. And uh, yeah, it's a two-year project that, we, that I'm um, coordinating now. And it's multi-methods. And finally, we will look into... We will actually address, that's what we're doing, we're addressing the gap of psychosocial services in the country. Um, there was a whole industry of psychosocial services that was actually, uh, that came into being during the war in Yugoslavia, and Bosnia was uh, experimental ground, um, uh, Croatia as well, Kosovo as well. Uh, so, uh, but then the whole industry moved elsewhere. 
Um, so people here were left without no psychosocial help and proper state services. They don't exist yet um, because of the transitioning context and many other things, the reforms that are lacking in the country, not only Bosnia, but also Serbia and Kosovo in the mental health sphere. So we are looking at the gap of some 15 years now and what happened to different categories of displaced women. We're focusing on women because generally uh, in a total population of refugees, 80% globally, I mean, are always women and children. So uh, if we want to act uh, and to influence policy, which we think should be the case now, and this is a high moment, uh, <clears throat> we want to address um, the most marginalized within the displaced populations that we still have here, and those are the women. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing right now, and some other projects that I'm involved in uh, are projects of exchange uh, with Syrian colleagues tackling refugee crisis, different uh, NGO organizations, um, activists, also in Ukraine, etc. So maybe we can come back to that. Sure. And um, actually, since this is the first uh, conversation as part of this series, uh, we kind of have to go through a, a sort of a didactic presentation of uh, the historical context we are we are talking about so maybe I'm, I'm gonna try to do so and you'll you'll correct me if I'm saying something wrong but so uh, in in 1991 we still have uh, this country called Yugoslavia from where from which uh, Croatia and Slovenia uh, uh, declares their independence uh, the central Yugoslavian government but very much the Serbian behind that and Milosevic in particular, are uh, declaring war on them after after three days it's over in Slovenia but uh, the war with Croatia is lasting for many years uh, but in 1992 Bosnia and uh, Herzegovina are also declaring their independence which uh, reacts in uh, 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 also uh, attacks from from the both from the uh, so- so-called Yugoslavian army and uh, and Serbian militia, and uh, and I mean we are in Sarajevo where there was uh, for three years the city was under siege and uh, and um, and uh, and then uh, on, in 1995 as a, the Dayton peace uh, agreements were signed and uh, the um, the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Was created with some some <laughs> some uh, complicated complexities that I'm that I'm I have to say I have to confess I'm only discovering with the, the federation and the uh, Republika Serbska, which is which is an important part of the of the country, which I'm not fully sure to understand the legal uh, basis of, of its existence. But uh, I guess maybe we'll talk about that in another conversation. And then maybe to continue the story, even though the, this series will not involve the Kosovo per se, in 1999 the same thing happened with Kosovo, uh, with uh, with again uh, some uh, important uh, ethnic cleansing uh, like there was in uh, in Bosnia, um, and uh, to use to use uh, figures that you're giving in a in a publication that we will talk about right now. Uh, a new publication from the the center for that you were directing. Uh, it's called Force Migration Review, and that's the number fifty, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, but just to correct, it's not our publication. It's from the Oxford Center for Refugee Studies. But I was editing that issue. It's a special issue. Understood. And helping them contributing with that issue because it's on Dayton. Yeah. Twenty years old. Plus twenty. Yes. And so, using using the figure that you're that you've wrote in uh, in this publication, we're talking about uh, during those uh, four years of war, two hundred sixty three thousand people who died, um, four four million people displaced, including uh, six hundred ten thousand uh, Bosniaks, so the the Muslim community of of Bosnia, which is uh, in majority in the country, but uh, with only thirty-five uh, percent, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not four million. It, that's in Yugoslavia. Yeah. The whole territory, but in Bosnia, it's two million displaced. Two million displaced. Uh-huh. I see. Okay. 
But so I mean, I'm which gonna, is sixty percentage of the country. Yeah, but I'm I'm gonna leave it to you actually to to explain this uh, refugee situation and how uh, people, the people apparently the people who came back after the war mm-hmm. were mostly the people who were in situation of uh, ethnic majority, uh, uh, um, and therefore there is still a, a very important amount of people who simply did not want or somehow were were uh, highly discouraged to say the least to to come back to uh, mm-hmm. a place where there would be an ethnic uh, minority mm-hmm. so we're we're talking about serbians croatian and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. bosniaks mm-hmm. uh, could you could you tell us more about that yeah but uh, if we go back to 90s when croatia and, and slovenia broke out from uh, yugoslavia um, then bosnia also voted we had a choice here and by 67% of the total population we voted for independence mm. from yugoslavia at the time which was made of serbia republic of serbia montenegro as well mm-hmm. and kosovo uh, and so uh, in Macedonia. In Macedonia, sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, there was something missing. Um, so uh, after that, uh, 67 percentage, as I said, but there is a significant percentage already Serbs, Bosnian Serbs mm. here, who are actually opposed to independence. Mm. So not only was Bosnia under aggression from Serbia or Yugoslavia at that time and, and Montenegro and all the other republics who, made, made the, made, made, who were making up Yugoslavia, but also locally, uh, Bosnian Serbs were opposing uh, to this idea of independence. So we had the Republic Srpska being uh, independent, uh, well, uh, declared some sort of, say, autonomy uh, in the midst, uh, well, just right after the independence um, was a fact. And uh, we have um, a situation in which the creation of that territory called the Republic Srpska, which was actually later recognized in Dayton Peace Agreement with 50, 49% of the total Bosnian territory. Um, uh, in that territory, Serbian um, uh, military, um, um, how do you call it, army or military militia and their, mm. their military corpus actually is... Um, uh, um, implementing what you just called ethnic cleansing. I mean, mm-hmm. they are um, the literally nature. well. They are literally um, uh, expelling all non-Serbs in this in order to create the clean ethnic territory, uh, which was the idea. And then you have a response. I mean, so you have a massive scale um, uh, expelling of the people and forced migration taking place from that part of Bosnia while the warfare is going and people are running to save their bare lives, you know, under the grenades. And so it's different in different parts of, of Republic Srpska. In some parts you had oppression, like fired from jobs, psychological oppression, different kinds of people left. Uh, in others you have like northern parts where it's down Priedor, notorious concentration camps where they actually just uh, arrested people, put them in a camps and tortured, killed in order to set an example for that for, for others or to have them flee because they are scared. So this is there are different means how this um, ethnic cleansing actually, which in translation um, involves targeting civilian population. Mm-hmm. So this is important because the, 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 the character of war has changed a lot before displacement was like a side effect of warfare. But uh, in Bosnian war and many other wars as well, um, targeting civilian population was a political and military goal. Military first and then political in order to create uh, the politically clean well, ethnic territory. Uh, <clears throat> So, well, in other parts of Bosnia, uh, warfare was, uh, you know, a different character of war, but it was very brutal. Um, a lot of people killed. Uh, there, there was a, a conflict between the Bosnian army uh, at one point and a Croat uh, militia, which also there were different different political ideas that uh, the southern part of Bosnia, dominated by Bosnian Croats, uh, should also. Um, opt for uh, extreme right politics and so there was support for this from Croatia so practically um, the war in Bosnia was like a mini scale Yugoslav Mm. conflict actually which is uh, very logical because this country was actually the heart of Yugoslavia. With, uh, and it was a mini Yugoslavia. Exactly, so right? exactly. And, and and the whole revolution, Second World War, did come out mainly from Bosnia and the whole idea of founding Yugoslavia 
did happen here, literally in the towns of Bosnia. And this was the most mixed republic uh, in any sense, uh, with uh, what we call mixed ethnic marriages. But I mean, they were just marriages <laughs> they, from this perspective. You know, post-war Bosnia, everything is mixed. But at that time, it was just a marriage, of course, because the ethnicity didn't play a role. It was um, different ideals, so socialist ideals that played a role. Uh, so, yes, uh, after the very brutal war with uh, genocide uh, in Srebrenica, massive-scale expelling concentration camps, mainly committed on Bosniak, Bosnian Muslims, but also there were on all sides there were war crimes, and they are being uh, pro- processed now in, in Hague uh, Tribunal, um, coming to an end with these um, cases now. Um, uh, of the, 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 the displacement scale was uh, 60% of the total population before the war. Last census was 91. We had four, around 4 million and something. Um, and now after 28, we had new census. It was very political again to have a census to count who is here and who is not, who is expelled and who is mm. not. Um, but all in all, two, over 2 million, so 60%. So every second person in this country was displaced. Not as a consequence of war, but as a war, you know, legitimate war um, 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 strategy. Strategy, that's right. Uh, and the displacement uh, was not ended by a peace agreement in Dayton '95, because the peace agreement actually um, uh, recognized the ethnic cleansing, legitimized it actually, and cemented the ethnic divisions by granting the 49% of the territory to Bosnian Serbs, the territory which is cleansed of all others, uh, and the other 51 to Federation of Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims. Mm-hmm. So um, it brought peace to this country, but basically it's just moved the war, it, insti- it legitimized the divisions, ethnic cleansing, displacement, and institutionalize the war because in reality what we see today there's not one we, we cannot with this constitution which I mean with this uh, peace agreement which then became country's constitution in paragraph 4 uh, the annex 4 of the agreement uh, it's just uh, paralyzed the country completely for the last 20 years we've been struggling with this makeup the division of two entities Republic Serbska Federation and within Federation uh, you have cantons, ten cantons, each, like, uh, I think five cantons are dominated by Croats, five, I mean, it's just, like, massive, it's ethnically divided, it's um, extreme right politics still uh, on the scene, um, a terrible administration and bureaucratic apparatus that no country in the world can, can finance, let alone Bosnia that came out from war, and a lot of money pumped in, but eaten not by corruption, and also really bad projects to return people. So after, when the peace was, this agreement was signed, there was a specific annex in the peace agreement, Annex 7, um, that also said that all people, it recognized the massive scale displacement, <clears throat> and it said that everyone who had to leave their homes between 92, 91, I think, and 95, that it states, <clears throat> Uh, has a right to return home and to restore his property because during the war the property was confiscated, you know, when you, when people were expelled, it was occupied and all the rest. So that was a, a very important aspect of return process, um, mm-hmm. right-based return. You have a right to your property. And, and this was a very complicated procedure, but it actually turned out to work well. Uh, the law on property law implementation program was imposed. Uh, um, I forgot to mention the Bosnia's protectorate. We have Office of High Representative, which is different EU countries, uh, different uh, EU member states shifting their representative here, who is overseeing the implementation of peace, Dayton Peace Agreement, including the Sonic 7 as part of it. But generally, we haven't seen much of return because, as you mentioned, um, the, the, the situation is like this. You recognize ethnic cleansing and you legitimize it in a peace agreement that becomes the country's constitution and then you say but that's fine I mean that was horrible I mean we recognize it it's horrible but now you have right to return so um, that right actually means that you are uh, returning to the very place from where you were expelled not to speak about traumas I mean that people injured but I'm just speaking now the logics of return to Bosnia you, you are returning to that very place from where you were expelled now, 
And there you will be in ethnic minority mm. because those who expel you, they have a power. So we are now, uh, you know, overseeing your property restitution. You get back your devast- usually devastated or, or occupied home. You will be given donations to rebuild, usually not the whole house, but it went along the family members. So say if you were from Srebrenica and all of your family members were killed, you, you find yourself as a single mother, widow, which is usually the case with that town, then you only have right to, like, donation to rebuild one room of your whole house because it looks, I mean, the donations were given in proportion to the, the, the members of the family. So then you become a double victim for. Mm-hmm. I mean, the war took everything away from you. And now, so, a lot of mistakes, I mean, a lot of wrongdoings in that process and not so good turnout. I mean, generally, uh, very positive property uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the regaining uh, repossession of property that was confiscated, taken, but giving you back your home, devastated, as I said, and took also a long time for people to rebuild. It's not just like you're given donations. There was corruption. Who's given donations? Who's not? Not to go into that. Hmm. Uh, some people were given donations a couple of times. Others never. Uh, and it all was very political as well on the local level. If you were party, part, a member of a political party that ruled, etc., etc., uh, in the end, uh, the properties were given back, but uh, we don't have people back because clearly the economic situation did not improve. The country was the seventy percentage of the infrastructure in the country was destroyed. The schools, the hospitals, the reforms are lagging behind. Nothing is working because of the political makeup, the division of the country, and of course, what you have is that majority who was given asylum uh, in EU countries, and it's more than over 150 countries of the world where you find Bosnians, more than a million and a half people who work in asylum, which is much different from the situation today, Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. only 100,000, uh, no, 120,000 will be uh, given asylum in Europe, which mm-hmm. is just like unimaginable. Back then, it was the worst refugee crisis situation since the Second World War in Europe, but it was tackled very differently. It was different, different political climate back then. Um, and it was a bit of like washing your hands, you know, by giving asylum to Bosnians for not intervening in, mm. the, in the war and stopping the killings and the and deportations, expulsions. So, yeah, the context was a bit different and the treatment was different. So, um, yeah, majority of those people were given asylum. Years have passed. Uh, it, take, it took time to get the property back. I mean, the, the life, normal life took over. They integrated in the countries where they got asylum. So they stayed very few returned. Those that that returned and that were recorded as returnees were those who were granted temporary protection in Germany. 250,000, the largest refugee uh, flow from Bosnia was in Germany, actually. Germany opted for that temporary protection and then returned back everyone when peace agreement was signed, 95. Of course, there were no conditions here in Bosnia for the returnees to restore the normal life activities, not to speak of divisions between people, between stays and refugees who were treated and still today are treated as war deserters on behalf of Bosnian population, Bosniak, sorry. So a lot of tensions and problems in general with return. But this is the case in, in any you know, conflict with the massive scale displacement. It's not been re- recorded anywhere in the world that return as a durable solution works mm-hmm. for the force displaced. So same here even though uh, conditions were those that a lot of money was pumped in here to make it work. Um, so, um, yes, those who were repatriated from Germany just went to Canada, uh, resettled mainly to Canada, to you know classical immigration countries that were still taking in at that time. This is 95, so Canada, US, Australia. So we don't have return of, of refugees. Uh, IVPs, those who were... Displaced within the country, like from one entity in the other, um, also very political. I mean, why would they return now when there is one territory created for them to live in? And uh, even so, for the Serbs, it's just declaratively that they wanted the people who belong to, to who have this uh, ethnicity, Bosnian Serbs, to return to federation. Say yes, okay. I mean, but very much politically. Um, if you look into that, uh, the, the, the politicians were doing everything to have them stay there because then they can prove in the census, which we just had, yeah, but this is dominated by Serb 
um, uh, Serbs here, so it's legitimate, you know, we have Republic Serbska and blah, blah. While in Federation, uh, similar, the politicians are like, yes, you need to go back, we support return, but generally they also need uh, ethnic votes for their uh, national parties because um, we have three constitutional peoples that came out from the peace agreement and the constitution, which are basically Serbs, Croats and Bosniaks. And all the politics in this country uh, is protecting uh, the, 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 um, these um, ethnic rights in any sphere of politics. You know, everything hmm. goes along the ethnicization of, of, of um, living you know, in this country, be it education, health. So it, it all comes down that uh, in the end you're left with the option to vote for the, the parties that represent your ethnic rights, not the other I mean, it's practically impossible. Also, the country, uh, uh, the Human Rights Court, a rule, uh, there was um, a whole, um, I don't know if you know about it, Sage Finci, probably some people know, um, and the non-constituent peoples from Bosnia, of Bosnia, Jews and Romans, hmm. actually um, won this case saying that the constitution discriminates against hmm. them. So generally, nothing is working and the people did not return, really. If they returned, they returned their property, then they sold it and they went for, you know, countries or territory within Bosnia, usually big towns where there are opportunities for job. Um, yes, and um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe... Yeah. Well, maybe to go back to the notion of return, and um, which obviously for me uh, um, have some echoes in a situation that I'm much more familiar with, which is the situation of Palestine. Uh, What's what's interesting in and that the, the architect in me uh, could not help but notice is that um, today I drove from uh, Croatia to Sarajevo, and so I crossed uh, maybe um, I don't know eighty to hundred kilometers of uh, this, the territory that is uh, mm -hmm. uh, thought as uh, Republika Serbska, um, and over those eighty kilometers, I probably saw a hundred ruins. Uh, houses in, in ruins and I was interested to see how uh, in Palestine it's been it's been made it's been erased completely all the Palestinian villages of before mm -hmm. 1948 and that are now on, on uh, Israeli territory mm -hmm. have been systematically erased mm -hmm. whereas here the the ethnic cleanse, the marks of ethnic cleansing are still very much uh, mm -hmm. visible so I, mm -hmm. I, I was not sure what to make of it um, it's funny because you probably crossed in Boston the Slavonsky Broad. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's my home territory. I do ah. come from Dervent, a town that uh, between that town and Doboy, which is another town, you've seen these ruined yeah. houses. But elsewhere in Bosnia, you wouldn't see them. You yes. would see property being rebuilt and empty, like a ghost houses. Because that's more typical mm. of Bosnia, like a ghost houses, because property was given back. And usually it's not the donation money, to be honest, it's money from abroad that people were sending and they were building their houses with. And the whole communities, like the villages, the schools, the infrastructure was much more rebuilt with the money from abroad. From those who, who, who you know, Bosnian refugees who were sending money back and still are doing it um, and investing in their local like communities, you know, because there is a special, there's always a special relationship between forced migrants and, and the, the places of origin, because you never left it on a voluntary basis, you were forced out of it. So there is always this connection of coming back, but if not coming back physically, returning, which in this case is very difficult because of the political and economical and all other situations. Um, then people invest, they would give money to have something rebuilt, or if it's school, you know, like different kind of projects. So... But the part that you've seen is the northern Bosnia that I do come from, where, which, where the situation was very specific. It's dominated by Bosnian Croats because it's the it's the um, bordering region. It's called Posavina. The river Sava separates Bosnia and and uh, Croatia, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that part of the country. And so, uh, majority were Bosnian uh, Croats there, um, uh, who actually <clears throat> that the whole that. That whole territory was was traded, and this is this tells a lot about the war in Bosnia. Between, I mean, it was traded for the territory in the background of town Dubrovnik, which is obviously mm -hmm. more important strategically, economically for Croats. But 
the trade was done be- between Milosevic, Serbian president, and the Croatian president, Tuzman, concerning the territory in Bosnia. Only because the majority of the territory were Croats, Bosnian Croats, I mean Bosnian Catholics at that time. So, so they were represented by uh, uh, Croatian president at that time, Tuđman. So they, they figured out, okay, um, uh, and the Serbs, they needed a corridor for the Republic Srpska to connect it with Serbia. So this whole territory and my hometown was completely destroyed, uh, was just traded because of this creation of a corridor for for the Bosnian Serbs with the center, central government um, of Republic Srpska in Banja Luka. So... 350,000 people were displaced, but they were given asylum and citizenship immediately, Croatians, if they were Catholics, of course, uh, and you needed to prove it. You needed to have like a church certificate at that time, and then you were just given the citizenship, Croatian, just across the border in Slavonia. So you would find majority of those people whose houses you've seen, the ruined houses, just across living there, making their life. It's not easy, but they're there. They got the citizenship, so... Um, but they haven't restored their property. It's just that they haven't rebuilt, they haven't used their donations, they never applied for it. But mm. interestingly, in this last call for donations now, a uh, year ago, I was looking at the municipalities that applied, uh, and the, the majority was actually in my hometown, in that bordering area. So everyone was like, what? The crowds are returning 20 years after? We don't think so. It's true, it's just a political thing, <laughs> and uh, um, it, there is a push for, from political um, elites in Croatia to actually um, have people at least uh, register in Bosnia and so that they can vote, so that the Croat parties can also have voters because the Croats are emigrating a lot to Croatia from Bosnia after the war they've done so. And there is always this threat and everyone is talking, you know, this, this kind of extreme right politics that they are, um, the majority Serbs and Bosniaks are like, taking over, so they need to have their own people for the Croatian politics to take place in, in Bosnia. <laughs> so it's like, um, yeah, the, the houses are not rebuilt because people don't find it plausible to live there anymore, but that's the only area where actually this is the case. The other, it's more, I mean, it's more typical if you travel to, to, to eastern Bosnia, like Srebrenica, it's like you would find the rebuilt empty ghost houses mm-hmm. while people live here. Because it's safer, first of all. I mean, we did have many years of unsafety for the returnees. I mean, in the first years, people were literally shot at. They were returning with UNPROFOR, UN you know, police, the soldiers, uh, guarding them while they were going back to see their homes, first of all, the ruined homes. And uh, so no one was welcome. But there was a great push to at least have the property restored. Everyone was working on it. OHR, OSC, international governments that are here, uh, development organs, everyone was really onto it, so that at least this property legal issue is solved. So that's more more likely. I mean, that's the the, the, the real impression of Bosnia: like empty houses, empty homes, empty towns, uh, but no proper like return, no, not in people. Mm-hmm. And the human resources, I think, are the most important for one country. Um, the thing that you mentioned with Palestine, there are some cases like in Eastern Bosnia, I think Zvornik was that kind of... Like if you don't come back and you don't claim back your property, um, the the municipality is doing expropriation. Like they, they would say that they need your, say, your field the, that you're not cultivating mm-hmm. you know, and it's just standing there for the public use mm-hmm. to build um, a home for youth, they say. So this there, there are still like ongoing means how to... Uh, actually confiscate and prevent people from going back. But the economic situation is is the real issue here and the political, the division that we have. So no one who lived in this country and has remembrance of it, you know, growing up here, at least some some remembrance, but also doesn't need to be personal remembrance, could be from the, you know, family experience, um, can accept what we have today. The, the, the apartheid society mm-hmm. and even those who don't have any clue about how it was to live in a multicultural functional society before um, also see that everything is wrong the economics are wrong um, even though they are prevented to learn why this is the case I mean that they don't study it in the school in the, in the school books there's nothing about the war it's too early they say and it's too political so we 
they can't read about it, the, the youth, the young, the new generations. Uh, I mean, they see that things are wrong, that they just... It doesn't feel natural for them to hate someone just because it has different ethnicity. I mean, it doesn't come natural to human beings. I think more natural comes to connect, but then they have reactions from their uh, you know, family or whoever, the environment which is divided, etc. So, so they also see that, yeah, this is somehow very strange, tense, um, wrong um, society to live in. And they emigrate, they go abroad. So mm-hmm. we, there was... I think surveyed and that indicated over 70% of young people willing to leave the country. They don't find it possible to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that brings us to uh, to the to the current uh, situation and this uh, whole other uh, population of refugee and migrants that are currently uh, uh, crossing the Balkans, uh, as we are all aware. Uh, so people fleeing uh, fleeing Syria, but also um, uh, Afghanistan and other other places. Um, could you could you maybe? I mean, it's difficult to talk about it because it's it's really unfolding right now, mm-hmm. and uh, we we see we see uh, incredible uh, uh, I mean drastic changes uh, uh, one minute after the other. I mean, uh, Germany is at first uh, welcome. Uh, 300,000 uh, uh, people and then uh, says that uh, re establish uh, uh, border control between Austria and Germany. Uh, Hungary will maybe talk about it in the series, but that's that's another mm-hmm. that's another particularly violent uh, um, policies. Croatia that uh, recently uh, um, also declared that it was going to open its door. Uh, Croatia that is not part of the Schengen space. I mean, that's important. Uh, but uh, same thing, uh, uh, recalls them after after being over, supposedly overwhelmed by uh, the amount of people who uh, who um, present themselves uh, and and seek. Uh, Seek, if not the asylum, at least uh, at least uh, the the possibility to cross to cross the country. Um, so all those all those things that almost change every day, uh, and uh, and quite often uh, is symptomatic of some very demagogic uh, uh, demagogic policies. But could you maybe? Tell us more about it, and as well, your what what you what you do as an activist in in this situation. Well, in this situation, I must say I'm not doing much as an activist. The the latest activist um, projects were projects of um, exchange, war experiences, um, exchange of war experiences, displacement, and return with Syrian organizations, uh, female NGOs that came. Uh, to Bosnia and Ukrainian as well. We went to Ukrainian um, uh, to Ukraine to to Odessa and actually tried to um, talk about a couple of us representatives from Bosnia from different sectors and uh, to talk about uh, how to tackle the displacement, how the, how to treat the displaced and uh, what are the needs and what are the rights etc. and how they can organize themselves in this situation. <clears throat> But what I do mainly with the um, situation that you mentioned, which is the situation of uh, international protection of refugees, is that uh, we provide education in, in refugee law. And the third school that I'm running, that I actually organize with help of Professor Barbara Harold-Bond from Oxford and a lot of colleagues in the field uh, with uh, international reputation who've been there and really worked a lot uh, to educate about uh, uh, um, protection of refugees and the refugee law and uh, human rights uh, as powerful instruments uh, to actually provide asylum and to help build up the cases, asylum cases, and provide protection for different refugees. Um, and that's what that I'm mainly focusing on education and establishing the field here uh, as an educational field, but also doing research. So. Uh, some of the uh, um, colleagues of mine from the center that also have done and looked into this issue um, have um, are doing their own research project, but I'm supervising them. Um, we did, of course, help um, because it's. I always, I mean, doing refugee studies doesn't go without activism. It's just like you cannot research among the refugee populations who are who are in need of basic things, sometimes food. Um, 
without helping. Um, so it's not ethical for me. And we always, in Bosnia, we've worked a lot with asylum seekers. I mean, what we're seeing now, the, the whole, you know, like transit, migration, that's not the new. I mean, it did escalate, culminate with Syrian refugee crisis. So that's why the media coverage is present. But it's been like this, I mean, this territory, let's say, ex-Yugoslav territory, including Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia now, that I can talk about, did turn or, say, transform um, from um, uh, refugee-producing countries, if you'd like, because of the war in Yugoslavia, into refugee-receiving um, uh, countries, states, building up the asylum systems. Mm-hmm. And, and incarcerating sometimes, even. Sorry? And incarcerating sometimes, yes. doing the dirty work of, exactly. of the EU. Much, much, yes, much of that. I mean, none of these countries has their own, say, will, unfortunately, in the politics, in the domain of uh, refugee protection or reception, actually, of refugees and asylum politics. It's mainly because they are accession states to EU. And Brussels tells them to employ, you know, to standardize with the EU laws. Uh, and regulations, and so they work a lot, all the countries work a lot, lot within the asylum sector on just legal framework and standardizing, why in, in reality the practice is really bad, and we've been looking at the practice as an activist, I've been both researching and being in the field with asylum seekers much before the Syrian refugee crisis, but even then, say, it, this is something that's been ongoing for the last 10 to 15 years, um, there were always, uh, in the last five years, there are Syrians, clearly, because of the war. But uh, as you mentioned, mainly it's Iraqi refugees from Afghanistan, from Somalia, from Sudan and other countries. And what's been happening here is that uh, the only, this external um, push or how would the external actors, EU, uh, but also UNHCR, are creating the asylum politics here, actually, uh, in these countries. Uh, And so... Uh, we find a lot of violation of, of, uh, of uh, rights, of asylum seekers' rights, and for this reason, as activists, we've been trying to kind of um, help in ad hoc manner, you know, like inform people, because they're very poorly informed about the procedures, even though they're um, partners of, of UNHCR who are funded uh, to do that work, but in practice, when you monitor how that is implemented, you find people many times you know, detained for, for not being informed why they are detained, just being detained and actually um, not given proper information about the procedure, not provided the interpreters as, as it's... Uh, um, uh, Compulsory. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's just necessary. You cannot do your, you tell your story if you don't have a proper interpreter. Um, and many other things like uh, reception capacity is very poor, like basically in, 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 in food, uh, which is like something that is given for a month and lasts only a week for people. Um, <clears throat> health, access to primary health, which is guaranteed by national laws here um, in the process of asylum procedures. It's just not granted, and and so on and so on. Uh, Not to speak about integration, um, because the rejection rates are so high, and this is important factor why non no why we don't have asylum. I mean, why we don't have refugees because people interrupt their their own procedures. They just leave the country when once they see that the economic situation, of course, is horrible for everyone, but once they see that there are no proper means of integration, there are no language courses, there's no no really, they're just like. This strategy of government is uh, turning them into transit migrants, uh, and this is what we've seen throughout uh, the years and researching the subject and coming in close contact with asylum seekers and refugees. Syrian refugees, for example, are given um, temporary protection, which means once the war is stopped, some peace agreement is reached, in Bosnia I'm talking, they will be subsidiary protection. They're, they're not recognized as full refugees. They're, they don't have refugee status. That means that they will they cannot have family reunion. So if family is separated, someone is in Turkey, they cannot have the family together, bring the family here, and they will be sent back as soon as there is there are conditions. So it's really horrible and they also leave the country illegally. So it's much you know, the the, the um, inadequate systems, asylum systems that also contribute to the transit migration of the the refugees here and asylum seekers, uh, but also, as you mentioned, rightfully, the politics of EU, which uh, see um, the the territories um, just outside of EU border states um, as um, 
territories, I would say, where um, the tension, you know, the, the, the protection of EU borders is taking place to different means. So mm-hmm. we see the transit centers being put in place in just outside of the Croatia border, the, the, the territory between Croatia and Serbia, money from the EU to build two transit centers. That basically means that they will be processing the asylum claims much quicker, which means probably more rejection, <clears throat> without being without having people enter the EU territory. Mm. And so you see a lot of this taking place. Um, in Bosnia, the detention center, you know, there is always money for detaining Uh, refugees and deportations, but not really for building up the reception capacity and integration programs. And so you see a lot of this. Um, uh, what we are seeing now, I must say, um, is is a, is a devastating situation, very confusing for everyone. As, as you mentioned, the policies that are, are changing from day to day. Mm-hmm. But what I find most striking, and I must say, is that this is happening in Europe where the Geneva Convention has come into place. I mean, it's been established after the Second World War um, because of the more than 50 million refugees, uh, together with the Human Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights builds. I mean, it's it's a strong basis that uh, of the international protection regime that also has its center. I mean, it came into being here in Europe. Um, and gives legitimacy to a number of organizations, from UN organizations to their sistering organizations to national, international, in the humanitarian sector, which also have their centers here in Europe. Not to speak of the refugee councils of different countries monitoring centers for migration, displacement, etc., all are here in Europe, and we are seeing that here, I mean, it's the paradox, that it's exactly here that uh, the refugees are being criminalized, they're being detained, the walls are built, they are not, even now, you know, there is possibility that they can shoot at you. So here in Europe, where all this came into being, uh, the, the heart of the international protection regime for one of the most vulnerable populations of the world, war-affected people, displaced refugees... Uh, is exactly where we are witnessing that these very people are a problem. We are, Europe is defending itself, EU namely is defending itself from these people, but also um, uh, creates the politics just outside of the EU, said here in Western Balkans, um, and decides on when transit, you know, how to transit, how many, when to close the borders, and all these things, and approves of that. I mean, I also want to mention that here in Europe we have numerous academic centers, experts, researchers, all contributing to refugee law improvement. Of, but everyone is silent. What you see in the field now, um, when you go there actually and you meet people, you see scared uh, refugees. And this was same like in the 90s, brings back our personal experiences. Imagine if back then the borders were closed for Bosnians and we were shot at and we were detained And no one thinks of it like that, because you forget very quickly, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, in the field, you only see volunteers, people from the local communities who bring food, the, the, the basic necessities. So it's, it's, it's just um, very... Um, dis- not disappointing. I mean, it's very difficult to understand that... Um, the restrictive asylum, access to asylum in such a huge, um, um, such a big manner, I mean, such, such a, um, um, what, what, such a strong uh, restrictions are actually taking place here in Europe uh, with only 120,000 now, you know, quota being dispersed. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's not even one percentage of the total Syrian refugee mm-hmm. population, which is over 4 million now. Not to speak of other refugee populations, namely Europe is involved in many of those wars. Actually, even through you know um, industry, the war industry, the, the weapon selling, etc. Uh, so it's just very devastating to understand that this is the direction that we are taking, and it's not only taking place here. It's it's all the developed uh, Western countries. Australia has the islands where they actually process the asylum claims you're not even arriving to Australian soil anymore mm. and everyone is doing the same so it's um, 
I mean, the developed countries of the West. And so this is really, it's highly problematic, the direction that um, human rights, international, you know, uh, uh, humanitarian regime and protection, uh, refugee protection is taking. Well, uh, actually, a, a, a last thing I wanted to talk about is, is precisely about that and maybe also uh, a way to... Uh, maybe not temper, but complexify a little bit the fact that uh, we are we tend to think of those uh, European uh, uh, policies uh, regarding immigration, or rather regarding the non-immigration, uh, uh, for their for their violence and their the the and think of them in in a global um, in a global uh, European uh, way of thinking that 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 tends to, to reinforce nationalism and all, all those things. But I, I, think, I think maybe it's, it's, it's interesting to complexify a little bit uh, why uh, we are where we are today. And I, I, a part of me want, wants to blame a little bit the, the, the 1990s uh, uh, humanitarian imaginaries, the, the, what, what the... What's the NGOs and uh, um, and the way the way the the NGOs have been trying to talk about globalization and uh, how uh, the West had a, a sort of responsibility toward uh, not not a responsibility uh, as like the former colonial uh, empires or something like that, but rather in terms of charity or yeah. something like that. And so, all of a sudden, we had all those. Uh, imagery uh, of uh, I mean I'm caricaturing but that's what they were doing like of, of dying children in Africa mm-hmm. and and whenever and I think it completely formed our imaginary towards refugees so whenever we think of refugees we think of people the most passive mm-hmm. passive bodies we can ever think of that we charitably have mm-hmm. to host on our country and help and mm-hmm. and be charitable again, when actually it's it's a very very strange way to see to, to think of things because indeed we are we are we are talking about people mm-hmm. in need uh, of of uh, mostly settling somewhere and mm-hmm. and receiving the, the basic minimum to actually be able to settle. Once this is done, we're talking about people who just crossed, like, I don't know, like nine countries, sometimes by foot, sometimes by mm-hmm. m- finding ways to, mm-hmm. to, to cross them. People with a, uh, with a very different background in their own situation back in, uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Syria or in Afghanistan uh, when, when they were before the war. So essentially, we're talking about people who are... Uh, uh, Probably much more, uh, much more uh, skilled and resourceful than you and me or any anyone else who, who around there. So I, I, I guess my point is just talking about the, also this uh, imaginary we see so much right now in the media as well, which which really is is about helping and being yeah. charitable when actually that's probably. The, exactly the wrong way to think about it, right? Yeah, Yeah. but that's very true and that there is this perception the categorization of people who actually experience war and this is not a new situation, we have the wars throughout centuries, as I said on this planet, all the time Um, uh, I mean it's diverting the focus from that situation, you know, which is an actual problem which then pushes them away, I mean to forcibly leave their homes um, towards them and making them a problem. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 that's not even what you are saying. I mean, making them look, you know, the patron-saint relationship is, which has been there in the humanitarian mm-hmm. sector forever. Now there is a turn from, you know, looking at them as desperate, poor, incapacitated individuals that we, out of our goodwill, help because we have the resources they don't. That that's been the discourse that dominated um, the refugee field and protection for a long period of time and that's why you have a number of actors who act on refugees behalf instead of giving the resources to people to organize their settlement no you have the number of actors who will organize and provide help and be liaison this and that between the needs of refugees and the other 
donor or I don't know, you know, like uh, main organizations who provide psychosocial help. They pro so self-organization <laughs> was never seen as an option. It's always, you know, con in a way controlling these masses mm -hmm. and putting them in camps, encampment of refugees is the key policy even of UNHCR because we nice and safely put them in a camp, we count them, we know how many they are, we provide the aid that we consider is what refugees need, and etc., etc. So that has dominated um, the, the whole field for very long, I mean, assistance field, humanitarian assistance. But now what we're seeing is more dangerous. I mean, what I'm saying is that now we, we've, been, we've become so desensitized, as you said, by those media coverages of crying children and this never showing resourceful person who's able to cross the seas to sacrifice his life in order to save his life and to, to start anew because he's prevented to have a normal, I mean, to renormalize life. I always talk about it's about, you know, normalizing your life because once you experience war situation, there's nothing, you know, everything which we find as everyday normal life is shattered, disappears. So what you're looking for is a, a fleeing that situation is actually already coping with it, mm -hmm. with, with the devastation, you know, your life under attack, etc. Uh, so you're looking for renormalization of everyday life. You know, you want to resume your normal activities <clears throat> as a professional, as as you said, as a parent, as this and that, as a member of community. Uh, so, uh, uh, but no, the presentation, the category, how it's created is the poor, you know, incapacitated, desperate, still present in some media coverages. But what is more worrying, um, what we have now is the development of because we've become so desensitized now when you show poor refugees, and there are refugees everywhere, of course, because there are more wars, and we are not addressing that. Actually, the wars are being, I mean, easily uh, started these days, legitimately, uh, in the Middle East, notably most of the time now, for different economic reasons, of course, reasons of, of um, the background of those wars, the, the causes. Uh, but uh, when but we are you know now we are so desensitized and there are so many of those refugees that we don't know anymore. When we look in the media, everyone is refugee because there are some wars. But we are not looking at the war and addressing that. We're just looking at these people and they have become a problem now. What to do with them? And so um, from being putting them in that category of desperate and incapacitated to making them a problem, they are still like that. I mean, we don't see them as as doctors, because we, if we, if we want it, I mean, and Europe needs this, we do need immigration, highly skilled, and I mean, there, there are a lot of things, especially here in the mm -hmm. Balkans, with non-return, you know, in Bosnia, but no one is thinking that way, because, you know, they are now, um, those in need, we cannot help them, because we don't have resources, or we don't want to pro provide any, um, that's our political um, uh, approach now these days uh, so we make them a national security problem they're terrorists they're islamists and also i mean this is all I, today i talked about this um, for bosnian um, bht1 they asked me why is this the case why is there a different treatment um, of these uh, individuals fleeing war today because there is different political climate if you look at the europe i mean there are extreme right wings the, the xenophobia since the europe started i mean the eu sorry um, uh, to 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 work on its identity. Mm. What is the EU identity? Mm -hmm. We have more and more discrimination on of non-Christian populations, mm -hmm. and refugees just fit into that because Syrians. You know, there is this whole threat that with the massive scale of Syrians. You know, now the Islam definitely in Europe will take a larger place. Um, so uh, if you look at it, I mean, it's the political climate that actually has again distorted uh, or created even the, the, the discussions not only the media coverage but the discussions that we have today about it's, it's become normal you know to detain people I mean how can that be normal just because you pass the border illegally and really I mean in a war situation you don't think about passports I mean we didn't have that issue when Yugoslavia was falling apart people were crossing borders illegally as well because just you, you need to find means, you know, how to restore your life back. So, and, the, and then there were convoys, humanitarian convoys. You, need, you didn't need any passport. Red Cross would, like, register you for a convoy. You would leave for Germany. I mean, it was very different because of the political climate. And if we go a couple of decades back, then the refugees from Eastern Bloc, when there was a division between West and Eastern Europe, were very much welcomed because that felt mm -hmm. West 
I mean, West felt well then to see that people are fleeing the eastern countries. Mm-hmm. So refugees were so welcome, you know, they were political. So, or from uh, Vietnam or... Exactly. Yeah. So it has changed and it's not just... Uh, I mean, it's a part of the, of the uh, happenings with, the, you know, the global changes, a lot of things, a lot of factors. It's not so simple. <clears throat> But what I still find problematic is just like going back that to what I said. I mean, we are in Europe. This is not happening somewhere uh, far from the centers of power, protection power, as I said, and humanitarian uh, organizations, you know, headquarters. This is happening here, and it's it, to me it's very um, indicative of the direction that the whole treatment of war affected people is going towards it's just like we will probably not care about displaced by war anymore and you know we will have more and more politics to protect ourselves from them and to to see them as a problem not the war itself well let's let's hope that our struggles will will be efficient against against that even though they made the situation looks pretty bad indeed but uh selma thank you so much for your time and for um, for starting this series, even though maybe I should say that this series uh, uh, almost started in Paris with uh, the conversation with our common friend, Lucie Bacon, who was ex- explaining uh, the externalization of uh, European Union uh, immigration uh, p- policies uh, in, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina and, um, and Serbia. Uh, and I think that was a great first uh, um, uh, a great first uh, um, tackle of uh, of those two main uh, topics that this series will be about. So thank you very much, Salma. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that Lucy is doing well as well <laughs> with her work, and uh, it's a promising work. And she was uh, among the first, actually, who have looked into the issue of of uh, transit, so-called transit migration mm-hmm. here in the Balkans. Thank you very much, and good luck with your work. Thank you.